We welcome Kendra McKinley to the stage of the Phoenix Theater. Kendra is a San Francisco Bay Area singer-songwriter who's recently released Henry Miller Memorial Library yeah. Sessions. has been called her most intimate yet self-assured work yet. Tonight we'll go deep into that album, get to know Kendra, and later she'll play us some songs. Please welcome to the yes. program Kendra McKinley. Welcome. Hi. So the Henry Miller Library, or more appropriately, the Henry Miller Memorial Library, is mm-hmm. one of my favorite places to go and see mm-hmm. music. And so when I found out that you essentially lived there mm-hmm. for several weeks and mm-hmm. over a month and uh, recorded an album there, I was like, my God, we're going to have something to talk about. That's good. <laughs> one less thing I have to figure out to talk, about. Yeah. Um, to talk about. I have been there dozens of times and I am so taken by that place mm-hmm. and Big Sur in general. So before we get to the album, can we just talk about like your relationship with Big Sur and what that place means to you? Sure. Yeah. So I went to Big Sur for the first time, at least in conscious memory, during college and I just remember being awestruck by the place like one is just driving along the dramatic coastline and then I returned in 2015 to perform at the Henry Miller Library with my dear friend Kelly McFarling and another band called Sparrow's Gate and I just remember this feeling of like immense belonging and inspiration as soon as I arrived there, especially being at the Henry Miller Library. It was my first time there. I'd heard all about it. A number of my bands had played, or a number of, not my bands, my favorite bands had played there over the years and I'd always wanted to go. So I just was enamored with the place. And for context, it's a 300 capacity outdoor venue surrounded by Redwoods. Yes. Yes. But more than anything, it's a quirky bookstore that's a commemorative space for the author Henry Miller that used to be his friend Emil White's house. Emil White was an Austrian illustrator that transformed his cabin into a commemorative space for Henry Miller after he died. Henry Miller lived up on Partington Ridge in Big Sur. So as I mentioned, I was enamored with the place, particularly the feeling of inspiration that I got from being in Big Sur. And I just thought to myself, if I had the opportunity to just be here and write songs, that would be the ultimate. So I expressed that to my friends that worked at the Henry Miller Library. And then fast forward to 2017, when the Pfeiffer Bridge had been torn down after flooding and and a number of other natural disasters. And there were mudslides in Gorda. And basically, like that stretch of highway had been rendered inaccessible unless you drove through the Nascimento Ferguson road or hiked a bypass trail with all your belongings. Um, My friend said, you know, there's no one really down there. If you wanted to go and live on the grounds, you could, but... And just for context, what you're describing with that bridge is Mm -hmm. that would like to be the equivalent of like the Golden Gate Bridge and the Richmond Bridge going away. Mm -hmm. And then you having to find your way into San Francisco from basically where we're at now. Yeah. It it would add like, what do you think, two hours to the trip to get to Big Sur, three hours to the trip? Three, yeah. So it became a very, I mean, it's already a very isolated place. But the the downing of that bridge for that time was extremely isolating Mm -hmm. for that area. So sorry to interrupt, but I just think that's an important piece of context for your time there. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it was basically like traveling back in time because there was no one there. Yeah. You know, usually every turnout is filled with tourists getting their, getting their coastal selfie, but you could just walk on Highway 1 without worrying about cars coming. So my friend told me that since there was no one down there, that if I did want to, in fact, live at the library, like work there as a volunteer and use it as a creative space, that this was the opportunity. But it would mean living in a tent, not having internet or Wi-Fi, and basically having to hike in all of my own stuff. And I said, yes, please. So I lived there in a tent for five weeks. Uh, three of those weeks, yeah, three of those weeks were when the bridge was still closed. So there was no one down there. You know, I could ride my bike on Highway 1 without worrying wow. about traffic. I had no cell phone reception, no Wi-Fi. Um, 
in terms of, of food, it was just whatever could survive in a cooler, like sc- just scrubby vegetables and grains. Um, I assume everybody who lived there like had their point person, you know, the, like yeah. taking everybody's list over to whatever the closest big city was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, one person would, you know, drive to the bypass trail, hike down, make it onto the other side, get in another car, then drive to Carmel and go to Costco and wow. just get enough yeah. for, for the village <laughs> to survive for the next, you know, couple of weeks. Um, so I was the artist in residence. So I lived there and was able to use the space for songwriting. But part of the deal was I would work in the library, which it's called a library, but it's actually a bookstore. So I would sell books to visiting patrons three days a week. Were there visiting patrons at that time? Yeah, mostly cyclists or locals. So that that was dreamy as well. So, you know, the, the door would be open. There would be a fresh pot of coffee. Um, and I would just be sitting at the piano writing music. And then a cyclist would come in and they were just totally spellbound by this this mysterious alternate universe, this private Big Sur that they got to experience. Uh-huh. Then they just got to come in and forget what time it was and read a book and... One of my challenges was that I wanted to be more transparent about my own songwriting process. So as people were coming in, I just continued writing, sort of welcoming them into that process in a way that I had never had before. So three days a week, I would be selling books. And then when the library was closed, I was basically just inside at the piano or with my guitar writing incessantly and because there were there were no distractions there was no stimulation of you know the real world of civilization or no internet or no wi-fi i was just able to immerse into the songwriting process in a way i'd never experienced before that started as a very romantic experience but then got intense because the more time that you spend in isolation the more that is revealed about yourself that is uncomfortable to look at what did you find of yourself and how did that make it to face to face? Okay. Um, so again, bringing it back to Henry Miller's book, Big Sur and the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch. I mean, that's a great book because he's articulating what it is like to react to that place as a creative person. Um, and there's, he has a quote in that book. Artists never thrive in colonies. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, Oh, I, I wish that I could recite it verbatim, but but he basically has a quote where he's describing Big Sur as a mirror, where how if you are in Big Sur in the the ultimate most most beautiful dynamic environment, and you find yourself still craving more, then that means that there's some piece of yourself that you have yet to confront that that you cannot. A pre- or I guess mm, I feel like I'm butchering that quote, um, but he also describes how because of the the drama of the coastline, it serves as a mirror in that it reflects back to you everything that you have been ignoring, and it gets you quick, right between the eyes, and it's unavoidable, and it eclipses this sort of romance that everyone experiences when they're first there. They're just like, I don't know what time it is. This place is beautiful everything is sort of in its right place and then you realize that there are all of these sort of undigested thoughts and emotions that you've been hanging on to that I think that the coastline forces you to confront so I definitely experienced that where the first two weeks I was just in the the ultimate soul summer camp where every day I just got to play guitar and do cartwheels and go to the beach and swim in the ocean and take naps and just lived my my dream life and then all of these uncomfortable things started to bubble up to the surface and I felt them sort of evolve as hurdles in my own writing process I felt myself trying to ignore them or trying to manipulate them into something that felt like I was still in control and I remember like getting to a point where started to feel overwhelming. And I talked to my friend, Sarah, who was down there. I just said, you know, I really hit this block creatively. Like I can't finish songs. I don't like any of my ideas, all of this sort of negative negativity. And she said, oh, you know, there's this Joni Mitchell article in The New Yorker about her writing blue. I think that you'd really like it. So I 
Beautiful. I, I read it. She had a copy of it. And then I thought to myself, well, what would Joni do if she was in this position? Like, how would she be as vulnerable as possible? How would she welcome all of these conflicting thoughts and emotions that were coexisting with the fact that I was in a utopia? I had a private Big Sur, and it was Indian summer in October, and it was only warm and wonderful. So, What, what did the article say? Uh, if Not to sidetrack it, but was there anything that really um, took away from the Joni Mitchell article? Uh, I, I don't remember specific kernels beyond just her describing writing blue as being conflicting because it was so painful for her to to reveal these these personal challenges, all the ways in which she was uncomfortable at the same moment that she was put on a pedestal and being glorified for being this this conduit for for everyone else to understand their own human experiences so that that sort of struggle to be so exposed in a spotlight that piece stands out but there is there is more to that article that i'm not remembering properly but after reading that and, and me saying to myself well like what would joni do in this situation how would she express this this duality between um, total uncertainty and absolute romance. And so f- that was basically my foundation for writing face to face as I just said, like, well, how do you actually feel? What happens if you just say these things without being embarrassed about how they might sound? What if you don't try and dress up the chord progression to, to, express something beyond the simplicity of what you actually feel and through giving myself that permission the song just kind of like spilled out and I just remember this this feeling of liberation just getting to say these things out loud getting to sing them loudly and and I think another piece that that maybe subconsciously found its way into that song was a was a spaciousness like in in the melody in the lyric choices that I think was a reflection of the environment that I was in. It's just getting to go out and gaze at the Pacific ocean, which just provides the ultimate perspective. And, and also just the space that I had with not needing to run around doing the, the music hustle I'd grown accustomed to not having the distractions of, a cell phone or email address to to mask what I was actually thinking or feeling. It just was about telling the truth in that moment and and enjoying that that could be beautiful. And what was the truth in that moment? What were you face to face with? Myself. But more specifically. <laughs> um, I... I mean, like I say it in the lyrics, my childishness, rather than like reciting all the lyrics in the song. <laughs> um, yeah, just just this feeling that I was an idealistic, um, romantic, impulsive, um, young person with an insatiable curiosity and urgency to create an enthusiasm about making things, but also immensely lonely and confused and uncertain and wanting to do a good job, but not necessarily knowing what that meant and feeling like I'd finally arrived in the place that I wanted to be, but in that feeling of arrival was also uh, a, a denial about the fact that there was like growing up to be done, ways in which that I had to mature. Should I, should I continue? I'm just curious how you feel like the Big Sur adventure changed you. If it did. It did. I'm trying to think of if there's like a way to distill it into one word. Or paragraph. 
Or chapter. Yeah, whatever. Um, you know, we got all night. I think it is reacquainting with with a a respect and appreciation for the creative process, for acknowledging that creative health is a is a real thing that in order to in order to create the in this case songs you need space and time to reflect and explore and it's not something that can just happen at your convenience in between gigs um i also had my my love and reverence of that place confirmed that that is a place particularly that the Henry Miller library is something that I want to be a part of my life, that I want to continue being involved in the enrichment of that place in its role as a cultural institution. Um, And that there's, there's nothing that a dip in the Pacific Ocean can't cure. So Treat was yeah. the last full length or the previous full length yes. to uh, the Henry Miller Memorial Library Sessions. What's the, what's the theme there? You know, what were you documenting there? You, you describe yeah. so generously what was happening during the sessions. Mm-hmm. Treat was two years prior. So mm-hmm. um, if you had anything to reflect on that, I think it'd be yeah. useful. I think about treat as a buffet platter of all of the musicians and genres that have influenced me in my life and me trying on a lot of different hats to see this hat buffet, trying on a lot of different hats (laughs) to, to see which one fit. So that's why when you listen to the record and all of the songs can like seem like their their own universes like their their own distinct i mean you know there's a song with a string quartet there's a song that's like you know sonic youth meets with a kraut rock beat there's like the heavy metal witch seance there's like the the soulful stripped down like Wurlitzer song there's a sweet there's um like sunshine daydream chamber pop there's um like an r&b song because I didn't know what I wanted to say yet. Um, I arrived in San Francisco in 2014 and, you know, had an opportunity to make a record and I didn't have a plan. I had a certain number of songs. Most of them were, um, I, I suppose, souvenirs from a handful of adventures that I'd had in Europe the previous year, just traveling for 90 days with a guitar and a suitcase. And it really just felt like a trial and error period. You know, I was still pretty new to writing songs. I was influenced by a lot of different things. And I didn't think about it in terms of creating a body of work to make a statement or curating an experience. My sort of inspiration was like the Beatles revolver, where each song felt like its own self-contained sound. Um, I mean, just like with wildly different instrumentation or... And I guess that was my justification. But um, yeah, when I listen back to it now, what I hear is myself exploring. I hear myself as someone that was in the recording studio for the first time, making decisions about things that I'd never considered before. You know, like, how do you want the snare to sound? What kind of reverb do you want? And I was like, what? what? I, I didn't I didn't ever think about those things before because I still felt new enough as a songwriter that I was thinking about songs as stories. And then the story that was to be told was going to be inspired by whatever the inspiration was. And the idea of creating a cohesive album that would make sense to the listener was not the intent, which is another reason why, like, you know, this new record cycle, I wanted to be really clear about what sort of experience I wanted to curate because That just feels like the next chapter. This may be a throwaway prompt, but you mentioned in the lead up to this that uh, something that has served as an inspiration for you has been autobiographies of funny people. Yeah. 
and uh, you, you listed off <laughs> a few of them. That. You did say that, and you know, again, we can cut it if it's no, if it's no good. But yeah, how is that? And do you have any like specific examples or quotes where you just like you read a thing about a person who you looked up to, and you're like, ah, oh, yes, that yeah, that's a thing. You mentioned Gene Wilder, yeah, Harpo Har- Marx, yeah, John Cleese, yeah, yeah, I yeah. did. I, I totally forgot that I shared that. Yeah. Um, well. For one, I really like reading autobiographies of people in the arts because it makes this totally unpredictable, confusing feat Me too. feel a little bit more manageable. Just like, oh, there's no one way to do it. It's all trial and error. You're mostly confused the whole time. Here's what you can learn. And reading about those journeys through funny people is refreshing because if, if we're not laughing about it, I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. I'm always fascinated um, to look at the personal yeah. lives too. You mentioned Gene Wilder, his autobiography, Kiss Me Like a Stranger. Yes. That's fairly new though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote it um, just like a couple of years before he passed. Um, he had a really, really great talent for finding the thread in his life experiences that that gave his trajectory shape that I thought was really refreshing and interesting and also just seemed like a very playful way of living to, to just say, oh, well, if it wasn't for meeting this person or hearing this thing or having this experience or missing this bus, I wouldn't have, you know, arrived here. I wouldn't have thought this, all these different pieces. So I just liked that that very playful way of observing your own life, again, with a sense of humor, just like enjoying the process so long as uncertainty is like the defining flavor. Um, and I just recently finished John Cleese's autobiography. And I think that my favorite part about it, and I don't know if this is a spoiler if anyone's planning on reading it, but um, he didn't he didn't get to... Monty Python, like the the point in his life where Monty Python started until the final 10 pages of the book. (laughs) And even when he mentioned it, it was at the end of a chapter. And then the final eight pages were about the reunion tour. And not only is that like such a funny joke on the reader, but I also really appreciated that he presented his life as like this thing that that I'm so famous for this thing that has defined me is is not the only piece of who I am that it's actually every step along the way all of the lessons learned all the trial and error all those uncertainties that made me that person and I just also thought that was a really refreshing way of reflecting on your own life instead of just you know, touting your accolades. I think another really important part of, you know, just the person that's at the table with us tonight is um, you were involved in something called Romantic Songs of the Patriarchy. Yeah. And there's a lot there. So what is that? How did it happen? And what did you do? Okay. So there is an Icelandic performance artist named Ragnar Kjartansson. Ragnar Kjartansson. Who Better was? Pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just feels funny to say Ragnar. Yeah, um, who was commissioned to do a piece in San Francisco by a nonprofit organization called the Sea Project. He came to San Francisco and toured the whole city. Was basically able to use it as a blank canvas, and he went to the Women's Building and had the idea to have a group of performers planted in different rooms throughout the building in every nook and cranny playing seemingly innocuous love pop songs that actually have totally offensive demeaning lyrics about women on repeat for the duration of a weekend. And that would be romantic songs of the patriarchy. Um, I, heard through the grapevine that there was going to be like a little test run for this art project at the women's building where they just needed a handful of guitar players that could just play one song on repeat for like half an hour and there would be lunch and they'd give us you know x number of dollars and i said yeah I'll play whatever you want for, for lunch and money um and back to gene wilder's <laughs> point just for yeah. an aside 
that's why you got to do all those things because you, you never to. know who you're going to meet. Yeah. There's always going to be a moment Say where you're like, yes. I don't want to leave the house because of this and that. Yeah. Always leave the house. Yeah. Just do it. Because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. You never know what happened. And I didn't know who he was. Yeah. You know, he had a piece called The Visitors at the MoMA, which, you know, I learned after the fact was just taking the world by storm. It's like every person that I know that experienced it seemed to be changed on a cellular level. It was like a nine panel video installation where it's all these different musicians playing instruments. Um, they're all playing one song simultaneously, but it's like each each video featured one musician. So as you're wandering through the space, looking at all the videos, you're like inside of the song. Okay. I still have never experienced it live, but all this to say, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. So I got there. I just was like chatting with him. He's a he's like a, a silly, charismatic cartoon character. And, you know, I, I played Try a Little Tenderness for half an hour straight. It was a totally psychedelic experience because the whole like notion of a song starts to dissolve or collapse into itself. Um, and I left that that experience hearing from them that like, you know, they would love to have me perform like when they actually did the piece in November. I was like, great, that sounds cool. Um, and then I didn't hear from them for many months. Fast forward to August, I got a phone call from the project manager saying that Ragnar wanted me to be the band leader of the project, basically being the liaison between the artist and the performers. And that they wanted me to come to Iceland to work with Kjartan Sveinsson, who's the former keyboardist in Sigurás, to work on the arrangements for the songs and just prepare for the piece. Um, so I went to Iceland for five days, five days including travel, and... We took 25 songs and transposed them all to the same key and made arrangements for them to be finger-picked on acoustic guitar. I made charts and videos of all the songs. Uh, In and five days? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was... I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that there's like video documentation of me playing all those songs, I would think that the whole thing was a fever dream. Because yeah. like with the jet lag, with like the subject matter, it was also the week of the of the Dr. Ford Kavanaugh hearing. So studying misogyny and the patriarchy in pop music while this was happening was painful but it also like imbued me with a deeper sense of responsibility that like you know we need to rethink the music that we're consuming we need to rethink all of this messaging in our pop culture and that's an incredible yeah. point there is is so much that was taken for granted about women in in uh between the 50s and now in yeah. the pop world that it's uh, <laughs> it, it it's kind of scary to look at yeah totally it, and and now every time you hear something on am radio you probably you think oh my gosh <laughs> i mean it's like, you know, I feel like I just got this new magnifying glass and I can't put it down because I see it in, in film and in television and music and in, in literature. It's just, it's ubiquitous. But, you know, if, if, if we're going to face and walk towards the right direction, there, there has to be this, this initial reveal. So then we, we did the piece at the women's building. There were 30 of us. We, we each had shifts of anything from 45 minutes to three and a half hours where you play one song on repeat in a designated spot. And then people would enter into the building and be consumed by this atmosphere of familiar music that has taken on this whole new light. And, and it was a wild experience. I mean, it, it really did feel like everything because it was at once energizing to, to just constantly be exposed to new people and feeling them react to you. It was also physically and mentally exhausting because you're playing one song for three and a half hours. It was also deeply painful because you are trapped in, or I mean like as a woman, like being trapped inside of a song that is undermining you fundamentally. Um, and also just like it got to a point where experiencing the reactions of the people would also feel really heavy because after playing one song for or doing anything for that amount of time, you lose your sense of self. 
So I would start to feel like I was like absorbing the emotional state of the person that was visiting. So sometimes a person would just come up and be weeping. And then that influences you. And I broke down a few times while playing. You know, I, I was assigned two different songs. One of them was Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon by Neil Diamond. The other one was a Backstreet Boys song, which was basically, or it was called Boys Will Be Boys, which was basically a narration of Kavanaugh's testimony. Yeah. Or rather, Dr. Ford's testimony. Yeah. On top of all of that, it was right after the campfire happened. So there was this apocalyptic atmosphere that seemed like a parallel or that was like an exact parallel of the oppressive, toxic atmosphere that we were creating by revealing what all this music was really saying. So it took a while to recover from that one. I, I, there was nothing I could do but play Tetris for like a week. <laughs> wow. it, it sounds like you kind of spent, immersed yourself in actually, quite frankly, the culture that I grew up in. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but the yeah. difference is, you know, now we're shining the light on it and yes. being like, mm, I don't know. I don't know if this is really who we want to be. Oh, you know? in, in a yeah. big way, in a big way. Uh, you know, and, and this probably won't make it on, but um, I wrote this uh, flamenco tune. And I do it with my band. And in the end, uh, the guy was a, uh, he was a character I liked a lot because he loved dance and he loved music. But he was also a stalker in the end. And I couldn't do the tune anymore like that. So I yeah. had to change the whole, I had to change the last part. And it So just, you wrote the song a long time ago. And oh, now, yeah. and now with the, the culture shifts and the awareness yeah. and everything, yeah. you, you've decided this. And, yeah. it, and it incensed uh, a member of my band. Yeah, that you changed it. I, we did change it. I like it a lot that's because better. Because he's a toxic masculine guy. Uh, yeah, not, yeah. He's he, uh, in that respect. Yes, he's not ready. He thinks that I was being trendy and wanting to change, but I couldn't sing the I couldn't sing the song like that anymore. It was it was uh, it was too toxic. It absolutely was. It, the The idea was it was supposed to be a joke anyway. Yeah. It was supposed to be a funny song, because he ends up getting arrested in the end. Yeah. But as you looked at the, the way the narration went, and I hadn't even noticed, this was a narration from a guy who had been arrested after stalking this woman, mm-hmm. yet now he's obviously out of jail, and he's still thinking in those terms. Yeah. And I didn't even notice the position that it would put a woman in. Yeah. And it was a punchline. Yeah. Fully, wholly inappropriate to me. <laughs> and that's interesting, no. too. You say it's, it was supposed to be humorous, but then yeah. you ask, well... Who's yeah. who's at the expense of this joke? Yeah, the, yeah, you know he. Yes, he did get arrested in the end, but obviously he's out, and now he's trying. Now he's communicating with this woman again, and that's yeah. Just, wow. Yeah. Really inappropriate, and I, as a songwriter and a performer, I didn't even notice how inappropriate that was. Yeah. Until uh, the Kavanaugh hearings. Really. Yeah. Is that it so? Was, do you, do yes. you, you feel that those hearings had that much of an impact on the you? The Me Too movement, the Kavanaugh movement, everything we've seen in the last couple of years. More than that, I actually noticed, uh, you know, and I, this is even weirder. I had my first inkling of it watching an old Dick Van Dyke show. I love Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. But there were a couple There were a couple of jokes in there that at the time I cannot believe America was laughing at that were absolutely misogynist and dangerous. And uh, it was it was late night one night when I'm watching this old Dick Van Dyke. My God, we're laughing about this guy punching a woman. Mm-hmm. That was the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're laughing at a whole bar attacking this woman. That was the punchline. Yeah. And at the time when I was younger and I watched it, I, I'm sure I thought it was funny. <laughs> but now, finally, we can look back. And, and if we're brave enough, I think, uh, we can say, no, that was absolutely inappropriate it's not right and and uh uh, you know and 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 that's follows half the songs that i listened to from the 60s that i loved and played i mean my god i i i don't know if i can do them anymore yeah or listen in the same way and that's too bad a lot of the old blues tunes Mm -hmm. my gosh just it would have been a terrible time to be a woman in the 50s i think (laughs) holy cow yeah. So, you know, and that's where we are now. We've got this body of work and we've got this body of art. What do we do with that? 
you spent three hours with two tunes that turned out to be really nightmares. Yeah. But nobody even thought that when they came out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd have to look at, you said you spent time with Try a Little Tenderness, and I'm going to have to re-look re- re- at that. Yeah, too. so that song didn't end up making the, the final cut, but I mean, other ones, um, there's the, the song by the Crystals, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. Yes, things like that. Yeah, by the Beatles, Run for Your Life. Run for Your Life. Um, Every Breath You Take. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly don't have the answer to your question, but I no. think if everybody was on the same page that these were not appropriate and societally were like past that moment, yeah. I think there would be less of an urgency, mm-hmm. but like we're, we're just not there. Yeah. We're, not we're, we're making it. progress. We are. You know, there is, I mean, look at you. You're, it's you're tr- an example of somebody who has, has changed. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm trying to change. You, yeah. you, it's, yeah, it, it's, tar- it's hard not to be aware of it. Uh, the media put it in our faces. Mm-hmm heavily for the last year or so and that's it actually needed to be done and what you're seeing now is projects like the one you were a part of Mm -hmm. and uh, you know me too movement broadly and so many other just offshoots of this uh, cultural awareness and that's positive i think that what we have to do now at this point is continue to think critically and discuss art of the past that is reinforcing these toxic themes and just make sure that the new things that are created are not repeating these patterns. It's going to be tough to repeat those patterns, I think. I hope that... I hope. I hope. Yeah, I you're hope. Right. So what we've done tonight is really look at like three... I think important parts of the Kendra McKinley experience mm-hmm. over the last five years, you know, your, your first album, your most recent release, the Henry Miller sessions. And then of course this project you were a part of romantic songs of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we've left anything out? Um, when we are trying to shine a spotlight on who you are as a person as, and as an artist? No, not necessarily. I think, I think that that, uh, identity will continue to change and, we can talk about that in the next in next 40 time to we, 50 episodes. Yeah, exactly. 40 to 50 episodes approximately. Yeah, when does the new yeah. album come out? Oh, the in date's the ne- not set. In the next couple of years. In the next couple of years. In the next couple of years. Yeah. So you, you would Before like... Before the next epoch. Before the next epoch. Yeah. It's Good. coming. It's, it, it is coming. Yeah. All right. Well, then, so uh, it's, it's essentially booked. You coming on the show again. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just... See we'll you just, there. We'll get the yeah. date when, it, when it's time. Great. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you sharing your music with us and mm. sharing yourself with us and just Thank sharing you. so much of your life and, and just the internal mechanisms of you as an artist. It's really appreciated. Mm. It's why we do this show. Um, your songs are beautiful. And Thank you. we are so appreciative that yeah. you shared them with Thank us tonight. Thank you so much. The appreciation is mutual. Oh. And now in just a moment, we get to hear these very songs. The music of Kendra McKinley is yeah. up next. Thanks again. Thank Thanks. you.
So.